Section 9 of Tin Horns and Calico by Henry Christman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 9 A Price on His Head. During this period, the Livingstons were never far behind the Van Rensselaers in insisting upon their semi feudal privileges. The main branch of the family was more or less headed by John R., who lived at his estate, Claremont and the domineering relict of Henry W. Livingston, whose mansion the hill was now known as Widow Mary's Place. Both estates were on Livingston Manor, which dated back to a colonial grant in 1686, and covered most of Columbia County, stretching twelve miles along the Hudson, and flanging out eastward eighteen miles over the irregular hills, to a thirty-mile width at the Berkshires, since the time of Robert Livingston, the first lord of the manor, the family had grown numerous, rich, and powerful in the best tradition of Hudson Valley aristocracy. One of the colonial governors accused Livingston of pinching his estate out of the poor soldiers' bellies. Like that of the Van Rensselaers, the family fortune had been founded on piracy in the Spanish main, and thanks to the leasehold system had lost nothing through the years. Tenants of various branches of the family, in Schoharie and Delaware counties, had met little opposition in organizing anti-rent associations. But there were physical difficulties in Columbia County. For miles along the river, above and below the town of Hudson, almost every eminence was surmounted by the stately mansion of one or another of Robert Livingston's grandchildren, and the utmost vigilance had been exercised since John Jay's suppression of the earliest tenant uprising. The Livingstons had reason to be alarmed by the spread of the anti-rent movement from Rensselaerwick to their own holdings. For months the farmers of Livingston Manor had been traveling back and forth to Alps to consult Dr. Boughton. A week after the 1844 election, the doctor rode down to the eastern hill town of Taconic, to address a meeting of Livingston tenants, and received their promise to organize, to blot from our statute books the last relics of feudalism. Remote though this town was from the riverside mansions, there was a spy at the meeting. As soon as it was over, he carried the news to the anxious manor lords, and lights burned late that night among the rich tapestries in the old masters, the next day, word was brought to them that Big Thunder was to speak at a public Indian drill to be staged in an open field near Taconic. Henry Miller, the sheriff of Columbia County, was ordered to learn the identity of the rebel leaders, especially the chief called Big Thunder. Knowing that any public officer who failed the Livingstons might as well retire to private life, Miller dared not refuse but he was nervous about the upriver tar-and-feather parties he had heard about. In the end, he escaped his dilemma by sending his son in his place. Young Stephen Miller mingled easily with the spectators assembled under the Taconic Hills, moving from group to group without exciting attention. He stood wide-eyed as the masked army tramped over the broad meadow to the strains of old Dan Tucker, played upon a single fife and accompanied by a small drum. He overheard a farmer say that Big Thunder had brought his best upriver warriors to lead the drill. Finally, the garish army stopped before the raised platform, and Big Thunder stepped forward. 
There was no mistaking him. He threw back his head and lifted his hands. Bright bands of colors hung from his long full sleeves. Down with the rent, he shouted. Blasts from the horns were drowned by the echoing cheer of the farmers. You have paid rent to Livingston long enough, he continued, in his clear, eloquent voice. The aristocrats have taken from us and our fathers in rent many times what the land is worth. They will take no more. We have ten thousand Indians ready at the first blast of the horn to drive their paid agents from our farms. The Indians are at your command, and they are ready to spill blood if they have to. They are sworn to protect you in your homes. As he finished, the Indians responded with blood-curdling whoops, brandishing their strange weapons. At a signal from Big Thunder, the instruments took up the strains of old Dan Tucker, and he led the tribesmen in their war song with its robust chorus of, Get out of the way, Big Bill Snyder will tar your coat and feather your hide, sir. The tale of Bill Snyder was too menacing for young Stephen Miller's comfort. He turned and slipped through the crowd. Before the last chorus died away, he was on his way to tell his father he had failed in his errand. The first violent incident occurred a week or two later, not in Livingston Manor, but on General Jacob Livingston's property along the upper valley of Catskill Creek in Schoharie County. As a late November sun slanted down the brown western slopes of Scott Patent Hill, General Livingston himself was returning from a fruitless effort to collect rent in person, in spite of, or perhaps because of, warnings he had been receiving for two years that he would be attacked by tenant warriors if he came into the neighborhood. Nothing had happened so far, and he was anxious to get out of the mountains before sunset. Wrapping a blanket round his legs, he urged his driver to whip up the horses. As the carriage raced into Livingstonville, the general saw a disguised horseman who lifted a tin horn to his lips. The sound was taken up by other horns in the distance. The coachman urged on his horses, but three miles down the road two more mounted Indians attempted to block the highway. "'Whip them up!' shouted the general, drawing two pistols. The carriage lurched past. The warriors wheeled their horses to follow, and one swung a heavy club at the driver, but missed and hit the carriage top. The jolt jarred the general's aim, and his shots went wild. As several more masked riders joined the chase, horns made the valley quiver. Down the road another three miles, General Livingston bolted from the carriage under cover of the gathering dusk, and his place was taken by a son of Judge Frederick M. Mattis. To Middleburg, for arms and ammunition for defense, Livingston cried, and ran for the judge's house. Inside he helped bar the doors and shutters against attack. His own guns were reloaded and two others put in order. When young Mattis returned through the back fields, bringing six guns, Indian reinforcements were arriving, and horns were sounding loud. His defenses now ready, Livingston sent the young man out the front way to offer to negotiate with the farmers, but they refused. "'Bring out the general,' they shouted. "'We'll not leave until we have the tyrant.' By the time darkness fell, fifty Indians were milling in the yard, blowing their horns and shouting down with the rent. The judge's son slipped out the back door to summon reinforcements, dodging through the fields to the carriage he had left half a mile away. 
At midnight, Sheriff John S. Brown of Schoharie County arrived with a posse to rescue the general. In the brief encounter, one Indian fell, struck by a rock, and was taken to Middleburg. There are many rumors, reported the guardian of the soil, as to the treatment he received after he was taken, which, we hope for the credit of all concerned, may prove unfounded. When an indictment was sought on suppositional evidence, District Attorney John Sternberg, brother of an anti-renter, resigned rather than use his office for political coercion. Within a few days, Governor-elect Silas Wright received the whole story directly from General Livingston. Still unable to make up his mind about the tenant uprisings, he wrote to Azariah C. Flagg, the Democratic boss, on December 4th. He maintained that if this were the only instance of disorder, the courts would be the proper place for settlement. But with the outrages becoming so frequent and extensive, he might be forced to take a stand on the issue as soon as he took office on the 1st of January. He had no sympathy for the landlords, he insisted, but on the other hand he was utterly disgusted with the mob law of the anti-renters. He would be personally pleased if he could tell them that men who dared not show their faces as a sanction of their acts should hope for little from an honest administration. He asked Flagg to take up the matter with their friends, including Martin Van Buren, and if they felt he had to discuss the issue in his message to the legislature, then what shall I say? He wrote again on December 9th, still asking Flagg whether he ought to ignore anti-rentism or meet it honestly, fearlessly, and firmly. The Livingstons on the manor in Columbia County were even more outraged by the audacity and lawlessness of their kinsmen's tenants, and they hastened to teach their own a lesson. Sheriff Henry Miller was provided with warrants to sell the livestock and household goods of tenants who refused to pay their rent. On December 11th, as he drove out toward Copake to hold a sale on the premises of Abraham Vosberg and Stephen Decker, he was greeted by a din of horns from the hills that seemed to be repeating, "'Tar your coat and feather your hide, sir.' When he reached Copake under Tom Hill, he was met by five hundred calico warriors drawn up in formation, and behind them a thousand spectators— Hurriedly, he tried to slip into the back room of Sweet's Tavern, where he knew Deputy Sheriff Walter Shaver was waiting, but eight disguised farmers crowded through the door after him. The leader was Big Thunder, who commanded, "'Natives, give heed, draw swords, draw pistols.' Hemmed in by a ring of gun muzzles, Miller studied the masked face of the Indian chief. Shaver stood by, waiting. Big Thunder spoke again. Is the sheriff of Columbia County in the room? I am the man, Miller answered. The tall warrior faced him. I am here as chief of the Indians, he said. We have assembled to prevent this sale. We want to do it peaceably if we can, but if we cannot. The door closed on the rest of the conference. There is no record of what happened after that in the room but later events suggest that Sheriff Miller did not want to lose the tenants' votes any more than the Livingstons' favor. Afterward, Big Thunder escorted Miller and Shaver to their wagon, then addressed himself to the sheriff in a tone that all the warriors and spectators could hear. "'You will go no faster than the procession,' he directed. 
the Indians will move with the music to the place of the sale. Little Thunder will precede your horses, and a hollow square will be formed around you. The band struck up a march, and Big Thunder strode out at the head of the procession. Mortimer C. Belden, who was Little Thunder, took his place in front of the wagon, and hundreds of masked Indians and farmers fell in behind. At the Vosburg farm, a mile and a half down the road, the strange parade halted. Sheriff Miller stood up in his wagon. There was silence while he spoke. I must sell the property as advertised. Big Thunder stepped forward. If you attempt to sell today, you do it at your own peril, he said firmly. We have met to prevent the sale. We'll do it at all hazards. The Indians and the farmers stood silent while the sheriff appeared to debate the threat. I will not attempt to sell, he said finally. When the cheers subsided, Big Thunder ordered the procession turned about for the return to the village. But Sheriff Miller could not appear to capitulate too easily. I must go on to the Decker farm, he said. Big Thunder ordered the army to face about again, and they set off with the band playing. They found Steve Decker in his yard. After a few words from the masked chief, he came forward, his weathered face wreathed in smiles. "'Are you prepared to pay?' Miller demanded. "'No, you'll have to go ahead and sell.' "'If you do,' Big Thunder warned the sheriff again, "'you do it at your own peril.' Big and Little Thunder drew their pistols. Again Miller made a show of hesitation, then shrugged helplessly and climbed back into the wagon. "'You can't go yet,' said Big Thunder, cocking his pistol. "'It is the custom of the chief to take from the sheriff all papers dealing with rents.' "'I will not give up my papers,' Miller protested, "'unless I am satisfied that those around me are determined to commit violence.' "'I can satisfy you on that very quickly,' the chief assured him. Turning, he shouted to his men, "'Natives, give heed. The sheriff is unwilling to give up his papers, unless satisfied that we are ready to take them by force. All in favor, raise your left hand.' Every Indian hand went up, and a war-whoop echoed in the valley. Big Thunder turned to the farmers, who were not in disguise. "'Pale faces, what say you? Are you in favor of taking the sheriff's papers, peaceably if we can, and if necessary, by force?' The farmers shouted their assent. Henry Miller then handed over the papers, and the procession started home. Steve Decker climbed into the wagon and rode off with the sheriff, who remarked jocularly, "'Now didn't you get out of that nice?' Steve guffawed and slapped the sheriff on the back. "'If you were up for sheriff now,' he roared, "'how would you run?' "'I know how to manage things pretty well,' Miller chuckled. Back at Sweet's Tavern, Big Thunder drew the papers from the folds of his calico gown, and the warriors stood in a circle around a pile of straw in the road. A pail of brandy was passed around, and the report was that Sheriff Miller drank with the Indians, assuring their chief, I am as good an anti-renter as you are. Big Thunder poked the pile of straw with his sword and addressed the crowd. Pale faces, is there any danger of burning the tavern if we fire this? "'Fire it!' they shouted. He held a torch to the straw, and as the flames crackled he held up the papers. "'These are the obnoxious papers, my friends and brothers, which have caused so much trouble.' Tossing them into the fire, he strode about in high good humour, poking the ashes with his sword, 
his rich voice topping all the others in a lusty chorus of Big Bill Snyder. Later, John Livingston was burned in effigy, and before the crowd finally dispersed, Big Thunder assured them, "'The sheriff of Columbia County is as good an anti-renter as any of you.' Turning to Miller, he pledged, "'I will not see a hair of your head hurt. I will stand by you to the last.' The Indians voted to buy the sheriff his dinner. Toasts were exchanged in the tavern, and long after dinner the brandy flowed in an upstairs room, where the sheriff's conviviality with the anti-renters could not be observed.' On the way home through Smoky Hollow that night, he stopped at Miller's Tavern. His tongue loosened by brandy, he recounted the events of the day in detail. When the barkeeper asked whether he had not been afraid, he replied, I had no more fear when the Indians were around me than I have sitting by this stove with you. Then, turning to a farmer who had stepped up to the bar, he added, I will not fight these men. They put me in office, and they are my friends. If Dr. Boughton had been able to manage every encounter as skillfully as Sheriff Miller's sales, the history of anti-rentism might have been different. But accidents were bound to happen when the farmer's anger was provoked too often and too far. In the hill town of Grafton, Rensselaer County, William Van Rensselaer helped create an incident which fomented public opposition to the anti-renters, Tenant feeling was already high in that part of the county, not only because of Dr. Boughton's work as an organizer, but also on account of the difficulty of making a living. The rough, heavily timbered, stone-cropped hill fields were hardly the promised land once advertised by the good patroon. The thin topsoil was so unproductive that the farmers had to patch their meager incomes by making wooden kegs all winter for five and a half cents each, and still they found it hard to meet the rent. Consequently, most of the farmers of Grafton were anti-renters, and calico was the best-selling commodity at the local store. The fracas arose over the right of the landlord to dispose of the timber on leasehold land, over the protest of the lessee and all of his neighbors, to whom a woodlot was bread and butter, Elijah Smith, a violent uprenter, had contracted with William Van Rensselaer to cut wood on a lot near Grafton. On December 19, 1844, Elijah and his uncle, Plum Martin, drove to the woods in defiance of the anti-rent threats. For several hours the ring of their axes was sharp on the crisp air. When at last Elijah climbed atop the load and swung his horses into the road, he was greeted with the war cries of thirty calico warriors. Unload the wood, the braves ordered. Cursing, Elijah jumped from the wagon, stripped off his heavy winter coat, and with his axe uplifted rushed at the masked men. Before he reached them, a shot rang out, and he stumbled and fell to the ground. The men carried him to Oliver West's, where they took off his jacket and vest. When they found no blood on his shirt, someone said, must have been a sham shot. He's only frightened. But the widow West saw his face pale suddenly and cried, He's dying. The wounded man could barely whisper, I'm a dead man. The bullet had struck near his heart. Elijah Smith's death was the incident William Van Rensselaer needed. Governor Bouck still stubbornly resisted all demands to send state troops to crush the farmers, 
but he did lift his restraint on the sheriff by issuing a proclamation calling on Sheriff Gideon Reynolds to command the assistance of all able-bodied men in the county. What could the sheriff effect with a posse of a thousand men summoned at random from among our citizens against an organization of Indians, demanded the Whig press, conveniently forgetting that a few weeks earlier Whig spokesmen seeking anti-rent votes had told the farmers to resist by force if they had to. The Indians would disappear on the approach of the lumbering posse and reappear as soon as they had retired. Moreover, in some of these counties, a large portion of the male citizens are connected with the association. For weeks, officials scoured the hills, arresting, questioning. Field pieces, muskets, and ammunition were rushed to Troy to equip an army to guard the jail against a rumor of a siege. The tenants disavowed any wish to interfere with authorities investigating Elijah's death, insisting that he had not been shot by an anti-renter. True, the Indians had gone to the woodlot to stop the up-renters from hauling wood, regarding them as agents of Van Rensselaer, but the shooting had not been premeditated nor was it condoned. It is supposed, explained an anti-renter in the New York Tribune, that a man by the name of N.G., fired the fatal shot. G. had before had difficulty with Smith, and it is possible that he took this occasion to settle an old grudge. G. is known to be a desperate, vicious fellow, reckless and revengeful. He might have thought that, in company with so many dressed in disguise like his own, and whom it would be hard to distinguish from each other, he could do the deed and escape detection. The letter did not identify N.G., but noted that when the sheriff arrested a man named Norman Goyer, the Indians made no attempt to resist him or to rescue the man. During the height of the agitation, William Van Rensselaer and his lady drove into the interior of the East Manor, where they were set upon by calico warriors, but much to the lady's relief, said the New York Post, she was not carried away by the disguised men. The Indians withdrew, the newspaper reported, and thus ended what seemed at first a romantic and to the lady a disagreeable adventure. A long investigation failed to make a case against the anti-renters. However, the death of the woodcutter gave landlordism one more useful instrument. The day before the shooting of Elijah Smith, Dr. Boughton had gone to Smoky Hollow, Columbia County, to address the Livingston Manor tenants and those of John Van Rensselaer, who had a small buffer state between the Livingston and William P. Van Rensselaer properties. A handbill summoning the farmers to the meeting had been distributed on the heels of the Copaic demonstration. It announced that Dr. Smith A. Boughton, agent of the anti-rent people, was going to speak, and rumors were already adrift that a later meeting would be called in Hudson to rally the dock workers to the down-rent banner. Long before the red sun came up over the Berkshires on Wednesday, December 18th, Dr. Boughton and Mortimer Belden set out from Alps for the long trip to Smoky Hollow. The doctor admitted to his companion that he was going against his better judgment. Ever since the election, there had been abortive attempts to arrest tribal chieftains and prominent anti-rent spokesmen on one pretext or another, and Boughton realized that he was the principal target. 
reports had reached him that Sheriff Miller, his professed friend, had been offered $500 to put him in jail. They were determined to silence me in some way, Boughton wrote afterward. The landlords thought, if I was disposed of, the tenants would become discouraged and return to their old custom of paying rent. The doctor had no illusion that the friendship of Sheriff Miller could withstand pressure from the Livingstons very long, and he felt the time was inopportune for another public appearance in Columbia County, with or without disguise. Yet he felt obliged to yield to his friend's urgent pleas. Roads dropping into Smoky Hollow were crowded that cold December day. About ten o'clock in the morning, Dr. Boughton and his aide arrived at Miller's Tavern, which had been thrown open to the anti-renters. There he spent several hours conferring with tenant leaders from the two Columbia County manors, while the crowd kept gathering outside. There were at least three thousand tenants by mid-afternoon, when two hundred Indians galloped up to the tavern with blood-curdling whoops and a great blowing of horns and rattling of spears. One of the masked men brought a stranger inside and introduced him as Colonel Ambrose Root. Dr. Boughton was so impressed by Root's familiarity with the anti-rent question and his professions of sympathy that he greeted him as a friend. During the conversation, Colonel Root challenged the usefulness of the Indians, but Boughton told him that until wholesale evictions could be halted by other means, the Indians would have to continue their operations. If the Livingstons would do what Garrett Smith has done, he said, and stay the collection of the rent for six months until the whole matter can be settled through legal channels, I will pledge myself that there will not be a man in Calico in three days, and I am the only man who can allay this excitement. Scarcely had Colonel Root left the room when Dr. Boughton realized he had made a slip in acknowledging his leadership. Sure enough, a moment later, Mortimer Belden came in to tell him that the colonel had been identified as a Claverack neighbor of the lords of the lower manor, and had been seen talking to up-renters as a friend. Boughton thought swiftly, and called in several trusted anti-rent leaders, among them a number of men in Calico. When the stage was set, someone was sent after Root. A few minutes after Root rejoined them, there was a knock at the door. "'Big Thunder wishes to enter,' cried an imperious voice. A tall, brilliantly costumed warrior, at least a head taller than Boughton, appeared in the doorway. With a bewildered look, the colonel turned quickly, to find the inscrutable blue eyes of the white-haired young physician upon him. The Indian who called himself Big Thunder spoke. "'Is there a man in this room by the name of Ambrose Root?' he inquired." Root signified his identity. By that time, Boughton was sure the man was an uprent spy. "'You will oblige us by leaving the room,' the tall warrior ordered, and stood aside, holding the door open for Colonel Root to depart. Downstairs with the crowd, Ambrose Root waited. Finally, a calico warrior appeared on the piazza of the tavern. Welcoming shouts greeted him as Big Thunder— the colonel was sure he was not the one who had ordered him from the room upstairs. This one was more nearly the height and build of Dr. Boughton. When he spoke, Root was even more positive. The voice of Dr. Boughton was unmistakable. Big Thunder asked the crowd to be patient. 
Dr. Boughton would speak to them in half an hour. Meanwhile, he had a few words of praise for the Indians. Little Thunder and ten Indians, he shouted, can handle any posse the sheriff brings out. More than that, I promise you there are ten thousand braves ready to answer the call of the horn. Quite satisfied in his own mind, Root waited for the next change of costume. After another wait, a small band of warriors burst from the tavern door with ringing whoops. Behind them came Dr. Boughton, walking with dignity. Suddenly, above the roar, a pistol cracked. William Reifenberg, a young farm lad from Hillsdale, who was walking directly in front of Dr. Boughton, slumped to the floor, instantly killed. The body was removed to a house nearby. Sober-minded farmers shook their heads. They had never approved of the goings-on of the Indians who dashed about firing their guns into the air and yelling. They had always said somebody would get hurt. It seemed to occur to almost no one that there might be more than an accident behind this tragedy. Dr. Boughton walked slowly to the platform. First, he expressed his sorrow over Riefenberg's death. Then he told the crowd that he had come from his home that day to tell them about the progress of organized resistance in the other manor counties, and he still meant to carry out his purpose, but he cut his words short and spoke very soberly. News of the boy's death reached District Attorney Theodore Miller of Columbia County late in the afternoon. He went at once to Joseph D. Monell, a Democratic politician who was being urged upon Governor-elect Silas Wright for an appointment as surrogate of Columbia County. Monell sent for Sheriff Henry Miller and demanded Dr. Boughton's immediate arrest. Finding himself in an awkward position, the sheriff hesitated. He wondered whether he had a legal charge. The charge can be settled upon later, Monell stormed. The thing is to get Boughton. To make sure, he accompanied the sheriff himself, and so did the district attorney. On the way, they strengthened their ranks with ten husky men, and at Claverack stopped to pick up Ambrose Root. Here, Sheriff Miller faltered again, but Monell bolstered him up with threats. Dusk was falling, and the crowd had dispersed when the sheriff and his party arrived at Miller's tavern. Dr. Boughton was about to go downstairs and climb into his waiting wagon for the forty-mile trip back to Alps, but Sheriff Miller stopped him. "'Dr. Boughton, you are my prisoner,' he said, stepping forward to lay his hand on the doctor's shoulder. Recognizing Ambrose Root, Dr. Boughton quickly took in the situation and shook off the sheriff's hand. "'For what offense are you arresting me?' You are the man who took my papers at Copake and destroyed them before my eyes. I am not the man you want, said Boughton flatly. Show me your authority to take me. Miller admitted that he had no warrant, but was making the arrest by virtue of his office. That is no authority. I have been engaged in no felonious act. I have been simply transacting lawful business with citizens. Henry Miller turned helplessly to Monell. Several anti-renters gathered behind Dr. Boughton, warning the sheriff that he was exceeding his authority. Monell ordered the sheriff to make the arrest anyway. "'I shall resist arrest,' the doctor warned. But as he dove toward the door, the sheriff seized him with a grip he had developed as a blacksmith. 
Anti-renters stand by me, Boughton shouted. Will you see me thus abused? I'll be damned if you take him off that way, yelled Samuel Wheeler, swinging his sledgehammer arms. Horns began blowing, and anti-renters came running back to the tavern. Boughton and Sheriff Miller struggled furiously. More men joined the free-for-all. The district attorney pleaded with the men not to stand in the way of the law. The sheriff had to do his duty, he said. It will go hard with you if you interfere, he advised them. Boughton will get a fair trial. The doctor broke away from Sheriff Miller, leaving his coat and part of his shirt dangling in the man's strong hands. He dodged across the road, backed up against a building, and cocked his pistol. There was no avenue of escape except a mill-pond partially frozen over, but not sufficient to bear a man's weight, and so he determined to defend himself to the last. Eager to resolve the impasse, Sheriff Henry Miller promised Boughton that if he would give himself up, he would be taken before a magistrate immediately and admitted to bail, and that would be the end of it. Miller even offered to provide the bail himself. His gun still holding off the sheriff, Boughton consulted with his friends, who advised him to surrender. Reluctantly, Dr. Boughton, Mortimer Belden, and Samuel Wheeler gave themselves up. They were hustled into a closed carriage, and Colonel Root climbed in behind the sheriff. Horns were still sounding in the hills and warriors reassembling when the driver lashed the horses to a gallop. In a letter to Thomas DeVere, Dr. Boughton said he was almost torn limb from limb with the entire destruction of all my wearing apparel and my watch, and forced into a closed carriage and brought to Hudson, where a mob was raised who seemed bent on personal violence and could hardly be restrained from hanging me up to the first lamp post with the hue and cry that I would soon meet my just deserts by a public execution. It was a ruse of my enemies, he wrote many years later. Under this pretense, they told me I must be put in jail for my individual safety. Sheriff Miller hurried his three prisoners to the marble-fronted courthouse in jail and placed Boughton under special guard, while other guards, fully armed, marched around the jail all night. I was confined to a small close cell, heavily ironed and deprived of the society of my friends, treated with every indignity and insult that could be heaped upon an individual, Boughton's letter continued, all for striving to assert the rights of the poor as well as the rich. I can now say with you, and say truly, that for the sake of equal rights I have worn shackles, which I am willing to do if my anti-rent friends will stand by me in adversity." Meanwhile, in the hills and valleys of Columbia County, tin horns sounded throughout the night, and the Indians galloped to central meeting places with only the stars to light them. Forty years later, reconstructing the events of that evening, Dr. Boughton wrote that at the time most people believed the shooting to be accidental, but later many came to think that the shot was from a disguised traitor and had been designed for himself. The mystery was never solved. Logic can be marshaled to support Dr. Boughton's suspicion. The Smoky Hollow meeting had been well advertised, and Hudson authorities knew he was to speak, yet they made no move to arrest him until after the shooting, for which he was certainly not responsible. 
it might be argued that they lacked proof of his identity as Big Thunder until Ambrose Root had reported it. But again, why wait until after the shooting? Might a better-aimed shot have made the arrest unnecessary? It was odd, too, that there was never any investigation or any arrest for the homicide. End of Section 9 Recording by Maria Casper